Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech podcast. Um, today I'm talking with Robin Farman Farmian. Um, her name, she says, is even so difficult that even she mispronounces it sometimes, which I thought was pretty funny. But Robin, how are you doing? I'm awesome. How are you today? <laughs> doing good. Yeah, we're going to talk about um, healthcare technology and being the CEO of your own health. So um, if you would, can you just uh, introduce yourself and a little bit of your background you know, for listeners? Sure. So yes, uh, I am Robin Farman Farmian, and you said my last name perfectly, which was awesome. I am a serial entrepreneur. I've worked on about 15 early stage startup companies. Uh, what I do is I work now on companies that can, are poised to impact at least 100 million patients worldwide directly, right? So uh, I sit inside, I've created a career. I've kind of hacked my entire life. And I've created a career that doesn't exist. And I sit inside multiple companies at once, usually as vice president of business development. And I'm responsible for the fundraising and the high-level partnerships. Uh, so this year, I'm raising $250 million across three companies. Wow, that's oh, amazing. But um, my background actually is I, I the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So I hacked a career together. I also hacked my own education. I went and I got a BS in management. And then I went to any school I felt like it because did you know you can just walk into Stanford, Harvard, uh, Wellesley, you can take courses whenever you feel like it and for significantly less money than if you were actually going for a degree. So I went to Dartmouth, um, Golden Gate, Boston University, Harvard, Wellesley, Stanford, Berkeley, <laughs> and I just literally took courses that I thought would help me in my career. That's really cool. When you said you took them, did you audit them just for your own knowledge, or did you pay for the credit hours? Uh, I, so what you do is you just pay, essentially, it's, it's not paying for credit. Well, I guess I, I don't know if I could have taken the credits and actually applied it towards something. That wasn't my goal, so I just didn't really care. I paid about 600 to $1,200 a class, except for the Harvard executive education courses I took. Those are between six dollars and $12,000 each. Uh, but the other ones are, are literally hundreds, and you can go uh, to night classes. I've hired tutors out of Stanford University. So I found an undergraduate professor took one of her courses, liked it so much that I hired her for six months as a private tutor just to teach me things. That's really cool. I like that. Um, yeah, most people are stuck in the paradigm of, oh, if you want to go to a school, you have to register full time. But I like no, the fact that you no. did that. That's great. Hmm. I'm an entrepreneur. I don't care about letters after my name, right? That's not going to help me in my career. What's going to help me in my career is gathering knowledge, being a problem solver, and seeing massive opportunities for disruption. If I may be a little bit self-indulgent, the reason I do this podcast is so that I can learn from hundreds of people that probably wouldn't talk to me otherwise. And uh, so I guess it's it's something similar, you know? That's really cool. It's, it's exactly. That. Yeah. No, it's exactly the same. You've just hacked a way of getting yourself educated in the in essentially the verticals that you want to be educated in, right? That's going to help you in your overall life goals. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, that's really neat. So... I bet, well, I bet in your life you've done this uh, in a lot of other unusual ways. Maybe it's not the main topic, but can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your life uh, 
when you've hacked other things that other people would say, really, you did that? You know, what are some of the things you've done that is strange? So absolutely. I mean, the way you do one thing is the way you do most of your stuff. So I hacked my healthcare, and that's what my whole backstory is about. Uh, my book is called The Patient as CEO, and I hack everything to do with my own healthcare. Now, the reason is, is because as a teenager, I was misdiagnosed with an autoimmune disease. I ended up all told having 43 hospitalizations, six major surgeries, and three organs removed for a misdiagnosis. So I ended really? up at the age of yeah. <laughs> I wrote a book on it, and uh, but I, my book is mostly around the technologies that are empowering patients to be key decision makers and the technologies that are disrupting medicine over the next two, five, and ten years. Uh, but it is based on, on my own experiences as a very severe chronic disease patient. And uh, at the age of uh, 26, this is about seven years after I'd had my entire large intestine taken out, and my doctors had me on extremely high-dose opiates, uh, 80 milligrams a day of methadone. That's when I fired my entire healthcare team, right? Started taking myself off the, my opiates, which is essentially the equivalent of heroin withdrawal, and, um, and hacked my healthcare back together. And because of that, I ended up getting diagnosed correctly, put on a medication called Remicade, and literally after 13 years of being partly a shut-in, massive surgeries, constant hospitalizations, I suddenly went into remission overnight. Wow. <laughs> So yeah, so I um, by hacking my own healthcare, and in fact, later on today, I've hacked my healthcare to the point where I now receive the vast majority of my healthcare within a two-block radius of my apartment or inside of my home. In fact, today I'm getting that medication Remicade. I've been on it for about 18 years now. It is an IV medication, takes about oh, five or six hours all told for the entire thing, and I used to have to go to the hospital every six weeks and spending almost half a day in a hospital getting an infusion. I now get it in the home and I was able to do that because I hacked it together. I, uh, I found a new doctor who would prescribe it to me to have in-home nursing care. I found a nursing okay. facility that's a full service pharmacy, called them up, got a nurse scheduled to come to my house. The pharmacy shipped me this incredibly expensive drug. Stanford charges $20,000 just for the drug alone. Uh, this full-service pharmacy charges only 5000 And my copay is now, instead of $1,000 at Stanford, it is now $500. So I have uh, I've saved myself a significant amount of money. And uh, so about, what, $300? Uh, a little bit more than that. And, um, and I'm getting it in my home. And my recovery time has gone from about seven or eight days because it's such a horrible experience for a patient to be in this windowless environment where there's constant noise and beeping and televisions are blaring and there are infectious yep. diseases and you're getting an immunosuppressing drug, right? It's an incredibly dangerous environment. And, uh, huh. and now my recovery time, I'm actually going to have dinner tonight with people. Like I would have never done that had I had to have Remicade at the hospital today. But instead, I'm just going to do it all day long in my apartment. My friend's going to come over and hang out with me a little bit. And I'm in my beautiful living oh. room filled with sun. Um. Uh Quick question, what were you misdiagnosed as having and what do you actually have, if you're okay about talking about it? Sure, absolutely. So I was misdiagnosed with ulcerative colitis. I was also before that misdiagnosed with anorexia uh, because I had dropped 20 pounds in a month and I was a, a very type A, massively overdriven uh, teenager at the time. Uh, both turned huh. out to be incorrect and uh, I done, turned out to be Crohn's disease. So Crohn's is, uh, ulcerative colitis is completely limited to the large intestine. So if you take out the large intestine, you cure the disease. 
So that's what happened in my case. My, my physicians took out my large intestine at the age of 19, freshman year of college, and said, bam, you are cured. And, uh, and that subsequently, I just had so much pain. And um, that's when they put me up so, uh, put me on such high, high dose opiates because they thought I was cured, but they just figured all the surgery had put me in so much pain. I was going to be in that kind of pain for the rest of my life. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but Crohn's is, is traditionally a very difficult disease to diagnose, uh, absolutely to diagnose. I was across, okay. I mean, this is across some of the top hospital systems in the world I went to, and every single doctor misdiagnosed me. So it's, it's just a very difficult di- to diagnose disease. Okay. Okay. Um, congratulations for being such a strong-willed and, and um, creative person and never giving up and, and helping yourself in such a huge way, you know? Well, thank you. Yes. So that's, I mean, that's one of my main goals now is to not only impact directly 100 million patients, especially with some of the technologies, but also with my message of you need to stand up, take control of your healthcare. Because if I hadn't done that, I would most likely be dead by now. And if I wasn't dead, I was a shut in. Like there was, I wasn't doing anything. Now I'm working on some of the most crazy, amazing companies in the world, right? And I had 38 speaking uh-huh. engagements last year. So I live on a plane and travel the world and give. <sighs> give talks and raise money. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's talk about some of your um, most exciting projects right now. Can you go into them a little bit? Absolutely. So uh, my, uh, one of my favorite, well, they're all my favorites. I can't differentiate. <laughs> Invicta Medical, okay. we are a very disruptive device for sleep apnea. We are a data-driven platform technology. Uh, this is a $10 billion market. And uh, the comorbidities are huge around the world of sleep apnea. Uh, Peter Thiel is our main funder. Um, so that one, uh, huh. we are a few years to market. Right now, we're in feasibility studies. So we're going to go through FDA approval. Second company is Actavalon. Uh, we are curing cancer by repairing P53. That is called the guardian of the genome. We are about six to eight years to market a small molecule pharmaceutical company. And uh, when successful, we will be able to treat and cure more than 50% of all cancer, 100% of ovarian, about 70% of lung cancer. Um, It's varying varying percentages of each one of the types of cancers, but the vast majority of cancers out there have some P53 damage. And if we're going in there and repair that, uh, we're actually curing the cancer. And the third company is MindMaze. It's a, already a unicorn, over $1 billion valuation. We, uh, we just got our FDA approval woohoo! Three, uh, about three weeks ago. And uh, what we are doing is virtual reality for brain injury rehabilitation and stroke rehabilitation. We're already in about 30 to 35 clinics in Europe. We've had our CE marked for a while now. Just got our FDA approval, and we're going to start distributing in the United States. That means if you've had a brain injury or a stroke, right out of the operating room or the emergency room, you can start to use our virtual reality software in the hospital and the clinic and retrain the brain. Oh. Yeah. And then our next verticals are things like paralysis, Parkinson's, and autism, right? So Should we talk a little bit about the, video uh, games. the, the apnea technology? Uh, so yeah, we're still stealth, so I can talk. Sure. We're still stealth, so I can talk uh, more generally about it. But what it is, it's, it's a very different way of looking at treating sleep apnea than the CPAP. Uh, and we are, I mean, it's, it's a data-driven platform technology that's going to be, you know, either Bluetooth enabled or we'll be able to do a data dump where uh, we're still um, looking into the best ways to do that. 
And so we will be able to have the world's largest clinical grade sleep database within six months of release. Because right now, sleep clinics, not only are they completely siloed, so no one has clinical grade sleep data. They have the, the Fitbit grade sleep data, which is not clinical grade. This is not based on FDA approved sensors that are, are actually accurate, you know, incredibly accurate. So we're, we have all this inaccurate sleep data, and then the accurate stuff is in the sleep clinics, except for the fact that no one sleeps in these sleep clinics the same way they sleep at home. So the, it's right. going to also be incredibly important because we are going to have in home, in the patient's normal average environment, and we're going to be able to capture their sleep data, do things like circadian rhythm analysis, right? And, uh, and be able to then also treat the sleep apnea. What, um, quick question about that. So what, what makes um, data clinical sleep data versus just, you know, Fitbit type stuff? Is it just finer resolution? Um, what are the differences? Oh, it's, it's, it comes down to accuracy, first and foremost. So, I mean, you could do something like uh, a CLIA certified blood lab is going to give you accurate results on, say, your blood glucose or your cholesterol or your whatever liver function test, right? But then if you were to go and try and, and do this kind of a lab, using maybe off-the-shelf stuff or, you know, uh, consumer-facing things, it may, may or may not be accurate, right? But we're talking about FDA-approved, regulated, peer-reviewed clinical studies around a way of tracking a biomarker in the body, whether that is sleep or glucose, versus, uh, you know, for entertainment purposes only. They are a world of difference. No physician would, would be able to make a diagnosis based on inaccurate data. That wasn't, rep you know, that wasn't absolutely reputable. Okay. So um, instead of asking you more about the specific companies, um, what's your method? How do you find new initiatives and how do you get involved with them? What's, uh, you know, what are the steps you take? So the really cool thing is that I've created a career where every branch helps uh, in enable the other ones. And so my professional speaking career and my author writing a, writing a book and, and doing things like podcasts means my funnel is filled constantly with people who want to talk to me or who want, to, want me to be involved in their company. In fact, I've never actually applied for a job, <laughs> gotten a job in my life. Like I've never actually gone to a company and, and actually worked there in a pre-existing job slot. Every company I've worked for has come to me. Uh, they have offered me a job and created a position for me. Huh. So, I mean, what's your method? Is it just because you have a great personality that people want to work with you? Or, you know, what, uh, what's I, an example or a couple of them of how you did it? And maybe some of the challenges you had, did they turn you away? I mean, or they're like, we love you, that's it. No, it's a domain area of expertise, right? And being able to get up on stage and talk about my expertise across a wide range of technologies disrupting medicine plus the credibility of a book behind me where you're literally seeing what's part, parts of what is in my brain and how I think, that people have so much information about me before they ever actually have their first conversation with me. And then I have my reputation and, and the, the things that I've already done and the companies I've already worked with as well to, to have the credibility. So I have a resume like anybody else. It's just these companies come to me. Or I meet them like in hall. A lot of the time I meet them in hallways at conferences. That's how it happened in Invicta Medical. We, uh, I met the founder and uh, one of the, the first employees there in the hallway at a conference right after jumping off stage. And within two minutes of meeting, I looked at them and I said, how do I get pre-series A stock in your company? 
<laughs> and I have never said that to an entrepreneur in my life. It was that I knew that this idea and what they were doing and the background that they had, they would be able to turn this into a multi-billion dollar company. And I was able to identify that immediately just because of the sheer amount of experience I have. And uh, they made me an advisor. And within a few months, I was vice president and uh, responsible for part of the fundraising. Well, okay. Um, what about some of the earlier ventures? You know, when you didn't have so much experience, how did you, you know, maybe maybe some tips for people because, you know, people apply to companies all the time. People have conversations, but most things never go anywhere, I'm sure. But it seems like you have a very high percentage of, you know, people saying yes to you. So maybe there's some insight in there. What do you think it is? Oh, there's lots of things. I'll give you uh, some uh, three, three awesome tips. Uh, so first and foremost, when I was establishing my career, and to this day, I've always spent a significant portion of my time volunteering and donating money. You don't have to do the donating money part, but the volunteering part is really key. And so um, in order to, when I first got into this world, I volunteered uh, to be on the leadership team of TEDx Silicon Valley. That was uh, one of the earlier TEDx's back in like 2009. And um, we were all around data. And I did a good job there. I spent, you know, a significant portion of my time going there, working for free, creating an event, running it, um, and, and, you know, driving down there and doing all that for nothing except for the fact that I got the experience and I got to meet people. Well, I choose my volunteer positions wisely as well. I love to be able to either manage all the speakers or um, work the front of the room, whatever it is. So when you have registration or what have you, because those positions means you maximize the number of people you meet, right? And when people are coming in, the first person that they see working the event is the registration table. You can be the one who smiles, who gets their, their card. You literally get to meet every single person who walks in that door. It's the only position on an entire event where you can volunteer that you are going to be able to do that, right? And so just do that across a wide array of interests to meet and grow your network. Number two, make sure you are following up and capturing, right? So make sure you get either their name or their business card, put it into your database immediately. I use Google Docs. I love Google Docs as my CRM, right? And so I just have columns saying the day I met them, right? Or even just like maybe some notes or something like that, or just record who they are and then tag it sometimes if, uh, you know, they're part of a hospital system or something, but you don't have, even have to get that detailed. Just make sure that you are recording these in your Google Docs and immediately following up on LinkedIn, right? And you will start to grow okay. your network so quickly. I bet all of you right now are sitting around and you have a whole bunch of business cards just laying around or in stacks. You know what you do? You either hire a task rabbit for whatever, $50, or you sit there, you get an app that uh, will scan it into a spreadsheet type format, right? And so just get that done or outsource it and have someone do that for you and start it now, start it today. Well, okay. Um, as you build up contacts and as you have more and more people though, how do you keep the relationships going? I mean, you know, if you, you don't want to approach someone just for, hey, could you help me out on something? You know, you want to offer them something in return, I'm sure. And then some of the people you'd want to have, you know, more relationships with. But, you know, how many contacts do you manage? How do you uh, talk to all of them? I, oh, so many different ways. Okay, so uh, first, I run events in my apartment all the time. Or I partner with uh, friends of mine in the area. I mean, I'm in, I'm in the heart of Silicon Valley. 
So we don't have a lot. I mean, we, there's a lot of restaurants and stuff, but there's not like a robust nightlife. There's it's not like New York or San Francisco or something. So we have house parties all the time. And I do them focused usually around a subject area in healthcare, right? So I'm having one uh, that's going to be all like power women in Silicon Valley who are uh, for decision makers in healthcare who, who have a lot of experience. And we're going to have about 10 women over uh, my friend's house and we have dinner and we have a conversation that we guide. Right. And I do that kind of thing all the time. Uh, number two, I am on social media all the time. A like on Facebook is actual currency. You need to understand this. It makes people feel good. Right. And it, as long as you are being authentic, so never go on social media and not be authentic. People will, will be able to smell that out and see that pretty fast. Right. So go on there, comment and like on the things that you do. Right. And be authentic and spend the time and take the time to interact with at least 100 people a day, whether it's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, choose whatever platforms that you like, stick to them and make them robust. You need to post and you need to absolutely interact. Third, content generation. Right. So uh, if you want to be a domain expert and you want people to be coming to you, you need to get writing out there. That is the single biggest game changer in the world of of having leads come to you is content, content, content. You can do this for free. You can have your own website. You can publish on Medium, LinkedIn, Thought Leader platform. You can get yourself um, after a while, uh, maybe like I have a I, I publish in Forbes now all the time because I'm part of the Forbes Business Development Council, right? So you can become parts of groups that will get you published in some mainstream magazines, but even just to start, Medium and LinkedIn. And even today, like, even though I'm publishing on things like Forbes, I'm still publishing on Medium and LinkedIn, right? Because I want to put more content out there so that you are giving people an education on something, right? And, they are, and your, your name is getting in front of their eyes frequently. Interesting. Um, I mean, everyone, I'm sure, uh, well, I mean, you know, it's funny the conversation's going this way, but I think it'll be very helpful to people. What about rejection? Have you been rejected when you reach out to people? I'm sure that not everyone's nice that you reach out to or you try to compliment or you try to work with. You know, some people probably tell you, go away. We're fine. We don't need you. What happens when that happens? I am rejected more than, than not, right? And you will find this with any good salesman or business development person that you will get significantly more rejections than you're going to have acceptances. I mean, think about it. Like we're opening up, uh, you know, a, we have a $20, $25 million raise at Actavalon that we're just opening up. It's a series B. How many people do you think are going to say, no, Robin, I'm not going to invest in an early stage pharmaceutical company before I get a bunch of yeses and fill the rounds? right? You always get rejected. And there's no such thing in sales and fundraising. And even being a thought leader, you are not going to be rejected all the time. So you need to either, uh, you need to be very, very self-confident and know that, okay, well, that particular one, it's not a good match for their particular business in the particular business I'm doing now. But those same contacts, that reject me all the time, right? They could have rejected me for three other companies. I go back to them every single time. And I'm like, hey, by the way, I've got this other company now that I'm working on. Uh, here are the, the points around it. Are you interested in investing in this one? So I don't take no as a no, I never want to do business and I don't like you. I take that as a no at this point in time for our two business goals in alignment. It doesn't work out right now. 
But that doesn't mean even in a month or two that it might not and things change. Right. So don't take a no as uh, don't ever take no personally. And if it is personal and it seems like you're being attacked on a personal level or rejected on a personal level, remember, most of the time that is them reflecting their own emotions. Right. It's you can't be loved by everybody. And so as long as you're a good person and you are confident and you are helping a lot of people in your own world, if one or two people don't like you, you know what, just like smile say that is, you know, whatever mismatch personalities, that's their own problem. They've got their own issues. It's not a reflection on how I am viewed by the rest of the world, how I view myself and the goals I'm going to achieve. Yeah, it sounds like that's um, that's one of your biggest superpowers. That's how you can, I guess, you know, that's how you can hack everything. You just don't take no for an answer, whether it's method or someone saying no or, or any of that, you know? Absolutely. You just keep trying and trying and trying. The only time you fail is when you completely give up, right? But you can stop, you can give up on a certain area, right? And just change course. But, uh, but just don't give up overall. And as long as you keep going and you keep trying and, and you believe in yourself, you will be able to be successful. Well, that, yeah, that's great advice. Well, Thank you. <laughs> I, I just wanted to let the conversation kind of take the turn, the turns where it decided to turn because you're involved in so many things. Um, and I, I, I just feel like we've uncovered probably one of the most useful things that you can tell listeners, even though some people may think it's generic, but when they look at the uh, massive successes that you've had and continue to have and the enthusiasm, I think it'll come through to people and they'll see. So I, I, um, yeah, Robin, I appreciate you doing the call very much. Thank you. No, it's so much fun. I love it. This was fantastic. All right. Any any last items that um, you wanted me to bring up? Maybe one last item that we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about in brief. Ooh, um, yes. So how to hack your own life. So uh, okay. so what I do now is I've made sure to look at my personal life and my business life as Robin Inc. So I look at it from a global perspective. I don't just organize in my business life. I don't separate. I don't have these big lo- like walls or compartments. I have systems in my business life and I spill them over into my personal life. I get 100% of my shopping delivered, whether that is clothing, shoes, groceries, medications, whatever it is, 100% of things come to my house, right? And there are ways to hack that from Amazon to Instacart to Postmates to hiring TaskRabbit to hiring your next door neighbor to do all your dry cleaning and and whatever, uh, little tiny errands. But once you realize and you free yourself from these, these types of small tasks, you're going to have so much more time in your life to do things that are healthy for you, like sleep, exercise, chill out, and, you know, go back and do your job a little bit. Because I see that people don't, they want to be efficient and they don't want to waste time or do silly little tasks at work, right? So you're going to outsource to your executive assistant. You're going to outsource to the design department, right? You're going to outsource to the marketing department things that you're not an expert in. So why not change, why not carry that entire way of being through to your personal life and outsource anything that's not worth your time or energy? Because in the long run, you throw a little bit of money at it. And right now, because of the power of the crowd and connectivity and platform technologies, it's democratized having a full-time staff. So um, not only do I get all of my shopping done, but in addition, I sold my car last year. Like I told I said, I'm never going to drive again because it is stressful. It is uh, expensive, right, to have a car. 
and it can be dangerous and it's a waste of time if I'm going to be commuting anywhere. So now I just use ride sharing services and sit in the backseat of the car and get work done or chill out or talk to my nephew on FaceTime. Hmm. Very interesting. Very unorthodox and very cool. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's really been great talking to you. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, thanks for doing the podcast and giving listeners all this great info. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.